one of my brothers decided he was going to start this, um, for lack of better words, a tirade about Christians. I knew that God was calling me to full-time Christian service, so we put our new house up for sale and made plans to leave for Bible college in January. To see them take care of their child with the means they did, and to see the love that the mom and father had for their child and the care they gave him and how much they praised God for what they did have. It was very inspiring. In my opinion, the greatest honor I could ever achieve would be to be a vessel for the Lord doing his work to help mothers and babies who suffer from high-risk pregnancies. That Jesus has given me back many, many times what I thought I had sacrificed for him. I think the greatest loss that I could have had was not to do the will of God. For so long I felt like I gave up a dream. You know, I didn't give up anything. My dreams changed, my goals changed, and he has me right where he wants me to be. For me, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was just what you do for someone that you love so much. I know the sacrifice that he made for me, and of course, I would do it all over again. For me, it was about obedience to my Savior, who gave me everything and died on the cross for my sin. Fifty years later, God answered my mother's prayers. God knew what it would take for my pops to accept him into his life. My mother would always say to me, God might not be there when you want him, but he's always right on time. I definitely understand what that means now. And I believe with all my heart that when Bobby enters heaven, when his body and mind are completely healed, he will be able to see clearly all that Jesus did for him. He will be able to experience the fullness and love of Christ. He will look back on his earthly life and he'll be able to say, Jesus, you were worth it. Haven't these stories been great this fall? I tell you what, I've been so encouraged, so blessed by how you are faithfully following Christ, how you are doing that no matter the cost and in family and decisions and uh, endurance, hard times. Uh, it's just been great to hear these stories. We thought with today kind of ending our, our Mark series, it might be good to kind of do a recap and just remind ourselves what we've seen, what we've heard over the course of this fall. And this really has, at least I said for me, been really encouraging. Today is our last day, I think 13 weeks, 13 weeks we have been in the gospel of Mark. So let me say it one more time. I, I've said it 13 times before. The gospel of Mark was written to encourage and to embolden those first century believers to follow Christ no matter what the cost, no matter how high the cost. And folks, those very reasons that Mark gave to encourage them, to embolden them are just as relevant. They're just as true. They're just as significant for you and me, 21st century believers. Reasons like he is God. Reasons like he is the one. He is worthy because he can forgive our sins. He's worthy because he can, he can speak and the wind and the waves obey him. Remember that? The demons obey him. Death obeys him. He's worthy because this is the one, this is the only one that can really introduce us to, show us, help us to know God and eternal life. This is the only one who has sacrificed his own life 
so that we can know God and can know eternal life. And today we're going to see that Jesus is worthy, folks, maybe for one of the most exciting reasons of all. He wins. Man, we love a winner in America, don't we? We are all about the winner. Now, I'm, I'm not assuming that's different in other cultures. I'm, I'm guessing throughout history and all cultures, people, people like the one, they like the team that wins. We always like winners. But I, I think in America, we've made an art form out of this. I mean, we are all about the winner. As a matter of fact, we even have a name for people who only like the winner, right? We call them bandwagon fans. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They, they, they jump on the bandwagon when that particular team is, is starting to win. And, and bandwagon fans are just horrible. You don't want to be that, do you? No would be the answer right there. No, thank you. All right. None of, one of us doesn't want to be one. Thank you. So I, I've done some research this week. It, it kind of so we can get a feel for the difference between a, a bandwagon fan and a real fan. Just so, just so we're clear. Okay. So let's get a, uh, here's some of my research. Okay. Now this is a bandwagon fan clearly. As a matter of fact, this may be worse than a bandwagon fan. You don't change jerseys in the middle of a game. This is just horribly disloyal. Boo. Bad picture. Go to the next one. Okay. Oh my gosh. You know, I never thought I would use the beebs in a sermon illustration. And I, I feel like I can almost assure you today I never will again. Uh, but, but I am using him as a good illustration of a, of, a of a bad thing. Man, there's not a better picture of a bandwagon fan. Obviously, when this picture taken, the Lakers, that was the team to follow. That's where the celebrities were. That's where the excitement was. And then we fast forward a few years, and apparently now the celebrities and the excitement are with the Heat. So now we're Miami Heat fans. That, that's just a perfect picture uh, of the band bandwagon fan. And uh, I'm over him now. So let's go to the next one. Okay. Now this, this sweet thing, huh? Now, you know what? I'm not saying she's not a real fan. She might be a real fan all the way to the bone. I'm just looking at her and I don't know, just something inside me says she hadn't been following the heat since she was nine. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing there. Okay. So now let's, let's go to some real fans. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about with a real fan. Wow. Okay, no, no pun intended. That is a true blue Dallas Cowboy fan right there. As a matter of fact, I, I sure hope that's a real fan. I'd hate to think he just started following the Cowboys midseason uh, because they're, they're winning. Yeah, that's, that's, man, that's willing to go all the, I think we've seen enough. Let's go to the next picture. Now, this to me is the proverbial picture of the real fan. I mean, there to the bitter end. There when nobody else ends. Stands alone. As a matter of fact, it almost hurts to be this kind of fan. You know what? If, you, if you'll notice something about real fans, they get defensive. They don't ever want to be lumped in with the bandwagon. You know, they, hey, man, I've been that way. I say, listen, I haven't been following the Broncos just since Peyton Manning got there. I was following the Broncos when we went 0-4 in Super Bowls, okay? I mean, if you're a real fan, you're almost not a real fan until it hurts a little bit, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's got to hurt to be a real fan, which would have to make fans of the Washington Redskins the truest fans in the world. <laughs> because it hurts every single Sunday. Do you all know what I'm talking about? It hurts every Sunday to be a Redskin fan. Okay, that's enough of the pictures. Man, I'll tell you something. Victory is so much fun. It's fun to win, isn't it? We, we, we love to win. And man, we will hold on to that win. We will hold on to that championship. As a matter of fact, I've got no doubt that some of you in here right now, you are holding on to that Final Four appearance. You're holding on to that Super Bowl. You're holding on to that World Series. I mean, you're holding on to that like it was yesterday. 
It was 1989. Get over it. Yeah, some of us holding on to our team like that. You know, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing that we can hold on to that championship for our team that happened decades ago. Because if you stop and think about it, victory really is kind of fleeting, isn't it? Folks, dynasties, sports and otherwise, dynasties always fall. Money always fails. Chapters, have you noticed this? Chapters always have an end. There's always a last page. And people, people always die until Jesus. Now that, that's a win. Let's look this morning at Mark chapter 16. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Mark chapter 16, second book in your New Testament, right after Matthew, right before uh, Luke and John. Mark chapter 16, the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. That's Jesus. He's, he's died on Friday. He's in the tomb. It's now Sunday morning. They're going to, to care for, to prepare his body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, folks, Jesus wins, doesn't he? Jesus wins and he wins big. And he wins for you. He wins for me. It it was our sin. It was the debt of our sin that we had racked up. That's what he defeated. It was, it was death that he defeated. It was the devil that he defeated. This is the hat you want to buy. This is the jersey. This is the bandwagon you want to get on. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He won. Let's applaud him like we would any team after a big win. Praise the Lord for that. He won. Now, I tell you something. One thing you know when your team wins that you enjoy doing is turning on Sports Center the next morning. 
getting to see some of those highlights and just remember again how fun that was. And then you, you see that score. But you know what? I can't, I can't do that with Jesus, can I? And neither can you. I, 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 can't, I can't see some highlights from what that looked like and, and how that happened. I, I don't see a score. Jesus won, death zero. I don't get to see that. How do we, we know? I mean, let's be honest. You got a clean slate. You've never heard of any of this. You read this. It sounds a little bit like legend. It sounds a little bit like myth. How do we know something like this actually happened? You know, oddly enough, there's a few clues in our story today. Now, when I say clues, there's the obvious statements. He's not here. He's risen. Okay, that's not a clue. That's just a write-out statement. He's alive. But there's some clues we see in the story and how those things play out in history that show us this thing is the truth. This really happened just like it's being discussed here. Let me share with you a couple of those clues. The first one is he died and was entombed. Now that, you know, if I'm trying to prove that somebody's alive, that might sound like a strange statement, doesn't it? He died. But you know what, folks? The evidence of his resurrection is so great that when people are intellectually, academically being honest with themselves, they have to say, that, man, there's a lot of appearances. There's a lot of evidence that suggests this guy was around after his death. But you know what? That doesn't make everybody want to believe, does it? So, some people don't, I don't want to believe. And so they come up with other answers. And this was one of the first ones come up with, he didn't die. That's why you saw him after the, after the grave. He didn't die. He's on the cross. He passed out. They put him in the tomb. You know, the cool air, the rest. He kind of revived, came back to consciousness, and, and, and then went on to appear to people. I think, it, I think it takes about as much sense to believe in that, as much faith to believe in that. Actually, I think it takes more faith to believe in that than it does the actual resurrection. Why is that? Let's remember the condition that Jesus is in. It, it's, it's Sunday morning, okay? He hasn't eaten or drinking anything since Thursday. Now, now, folks, if you're healthy, and can we agree for a moment that when they placed Jesus in the tomb, he wasn't healthy. His body was not okay. But if you're absolutely okay, starting with full health, and you don't eat or drink anything for three days, well, you know what? You actually can survive quite fine without the food for three days, but not the water. Not, not anything to drink. You, you would be in a severe state of dehydration. Blood pressure would be an issue. You, you would not be well. But we're not just dealing with Jesus hadn't had anything to drink, are we? No, he, he, he's been beaten. He's been crucified. He has lost over half the blood in his body. Okay, that would just enhance the dehydration, plus just make sure there's going to be almost no blood pressure. If he could stand up, he would just pass right back out again. Now, you know what, folks, we can almost just stop right there and not even go on with the medical condition that Jesus is in. Oh, here's one. Let's not forget. He's got holes in his feet, right? Remember, they drove a nail through his feet, his hands, obviously, but he's going to need these feet because he's going to be doing a lot of walking around. He's got to walk to Galilee and he's got holes in his feet. Is that a problem for anybody? Have you ever stepped on a nail? Who stepped on a nail? Yeah. Okay. A lot of us. (laughs) Yeah. I've stepped on. Ouch. Hurts, right? Yeah, and I'm just talking about a, a regular nail, a construction nail. Step on that, you know, you go crawling to the door to your mom like you're dying. Oh, I'm, I'm dying. And okay. Yeah, yeah, that hurts. But we're not talking about Jesus stepping on a nail. What, what they used to nail him to the cross, probably the only thing we would have to really compare to that would be more like a railroad spike. This, this would have left a hole in his foot about the size of a quarter. 
Okay, so he's got holes through both feet the size of a quarter. So, so he pops up with the holes in his feet, with the holes in his wrist. And now in that condition, he is going to move, I don't know, several thousand pounds of stone, uh, a stone out of the way. He's going to sneak past the guards and he's going to walk to Galilee where he's going to present himself to the disciples, not as a survivor. Folks, there's a big difference between surviving something and conquering something, isn't there? Okay, so whatever the disciples saw, if he's just surviving, don't you think they're going to go, have you ever seen anybody after a car accident? Sadly, unfortunately, I get to do that a lot. You don't look at them and think, man, you conquered. No, they're usually in the hospital, which is where Jesus would be in a modern day hospital for months in intensive care after what he's been through. And yet we're to believe that in that condition, he actually tricked the disciples into believing he had conquered something. No, folks, that doesn't add up. I might not want to believe, but that doesn't add up. And let, let's not forget our Roman, our Roman executioners who were professional executioners. That was their job to kill, right? And in the Roman army, they had a kind of a, a unique way of motivating you to be all you could be in this man's army. They kill you. If you didn't do your job, if you failed at your job, they just killed you. That's pretty motivating, isn't it? I guess that would keep you pretty sharp at work. Okay, well, that's true for the executioners too. If they didn't do their job, they died. But this wasn't just any job. Uh, This wasn't just any person. A lot of media attention with this one. A lot of bigwigs upstairs are watching this. So when they report, not just to their commander, they're actually reporting to the governor. The prefect, they're reporting to Pontius Pilate. If there was ever going to be a time that their report was going to be dead on accurate, that no pun intended, if there was ever going to be a time they were right, it was going to be this time. As a matter of fact, looking at him on the cross, knowing that he was dead, but knowing that everybody was watching this one, they made sure he was dead. Remember the last thing that happened to Jesus on the cross? They picked up a spear and they ran it through him. Make sure you're dead. Folks, it takes a lot more faith to believe he didn't die than to believe he died and rose again. He did not survive the cross and a beating. He conquered death and the grave. Let me give you a second clue as to the truthfulness and the the veracity of this story. And it's a little bit of odd one. We really wouldn't understand it in our culture because we our, our thinking has evolved. The way we look at people has evolved. And, uh, but that wasn't the case in Israel. It wasn't the case in Rome. It wasn't the case anywhere in the known world. And that was you didn't use a woman as a witness. As a matter of fact, during this time, a woman could not even be a legal witness in a court of law. And and so to use a woman in your story almost cast doubt on the story. As a matter of fact, there's a Greek philosopher, Celsus, not Celsius, the temperature, Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S, who actually was quoted as saying there's no way the resurrection is true because women were the first reporters of it. I mean, and that was the mentality. That sounds weird to us, but that was the mentality back then. Now, here's my point in explaining that. If this is not true, if this did not happen, if John and, and, and Peter and these other apostles, if they did not see Jesus, they're just making the story up. You know, we got, we're going to get this religion thing going. We're going to let people think Jesus is really alive. So they're fabricating this story because there is a story, right? Uh, that means the story was made up. 
Whoever, whether it was one person or a dozen people, whoever's making that story up, there's no way they put a woman in it. There's no way they make the first witness, the initial witnesses, the initial ones to go and tell. There's no way they make it a woman. That would just, hey, listen, I'm already trying to get you to believe something that's hard to swallow, that somebody conquered the grave. That all by itself is big. There's no way I'm going to add the difficulty of trying to get you to believe women. So there's no way. As a matter of fact, you kind of almost scratch your head and say, hey, knowing the world, knowing the context you live in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why, why did you put women in the story? Why did you include them as the, the original witnesses? I think they'd scratch their head and say, because it's how it happened. That's what we're reporting, the truth. It's just what happened that's why it's there there's no way you make the story up and go that direction the third reason my last clue here folks for why this is truth and i'm sure some of you've heard this man the eyewitness testimonies and not only the eyewitness testimonies but the changed lives of those eyewitnesses you know there's nothing more powerful in a court of law than than an eyewitness testimony and and while Matthew Mark Luke John all record these appearances all record the eyewitnesses some of those stories are are overlapping you can study it and see there are at least there's a minimum I'm not saying there's only there is a minimum of seven distinct appearances whether he's appearing to one or or three or in our story here whether he's appearing to eleven Uh, There are at least seven distinct appearances. Paul adds to the list, talks about some other appearances that took place. One of them including 500 people. So folks, a lot of people are out there saying, I saw this. Now, somebody might say, the skeptic might say, well, you know what, they're all crazy. There's a whole bunch of crazy people report. Okay, yeah, there's crazy people believe things. That's true. But that many... And when it's starting to cost, which I'll talk about in a second, usually crazy people don't hang on to stories when it starts to cost. Well, maybe they're all deluded, all of them, different places, different settings, different things going on. They're all deluded by the exact same story. I mean, folks, that's just highly unbelievable. That's not what craziness looks like. That's not what delusion looks like. You're, you're having to, you're, you yourself would be having to escape reality to find another reason for why they're telling this story. No, folks, this is, this is not a group of people, not the 11, not the 500. This is not a group of people who are wanting to believe their Savior is alive, who, who are wanting to go out and tell a story. W- what did our story show us? Man, they were cowards. That, that's the starting place of this story. They were cowards. They were, they were unbelieving. As a matter of fact, it's, it's almost amazing that they were unbelieving. You know, Jesus told them on three separate occasions Hey, this is what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem this weekend. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. That's just the places it was recorded for us. There may have been other times. He said, when we get there, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And folks, so far, everything he said happened just like he said it was going to happen. The last thing to happen is what? And then I rise again on the third day. You, You would think, wouldn't you, that disciples would be looking for that. You'd think they'd have been down there. But they weren't looking. As a matter of fact, not only were they not looking, but even when somebody came and told them that they had seen them, they didn't believe it. And folks, these aren't strangers that are coming to tell them this. These aren't people, are they trying to trick us? Are they they trying to flush us out of hiding? And these are their friends. 
These are close friends. These are people they've walked with for years that are coming and telling us, and they're not believing. Folks, these, these disciples, these original 11, remember we started the weekend with 12, but we lost one, right? Judas is gone. Okay, but so we, these 11, hey, they're starting from a place of cowardice. They're, they're starting from a place of hiding. They're not going to go and tell. And yet something changed. Something changed that they not only believed the story, but they did go and tell. And folks, they did it at the highest costs. And not just the 11, all of these witnesses, many of them, they were run out of town. They oh, they're probably doing it for financial gain. No, it's, it's, it's not televangelism America yet, okay? There, there's no financial gain in this. They're being run out of towns, they're being arrested, and they're being killed. That's what's happening to these original witnesses that are going out and saying, I saw the resurrected Christ. The 11 men in that room, those 11 original disciples, you know, 10 of the 11 were murdered and martyred for telling this story. Only one lived to old age. That's the apostle John. He was tortured. He was boiled in oil. You know, honestly, I think if I was boiled in oil, I'm not sure I'd want to survive that. Can you imagine that he ever been burned? Can you imagine the pain he lived with for the rest of his life? But, but, but he did survive that and he did go on to die of old age. The other 10 crucified, crucified upside down, sawn in half, beheaded. Why? Because they'd said they'd seen the resurrected Christ. How do you explain that change? How do you explain that boldness if, if none of this is true? Folks, the reason they changed, the reason they told this story is because they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They saw the Son of God, their Savior and Lord, alive. Amen? And you know what, folks? I am under the opinion, as hard as it is to believe, that I haven't seen anybody come out of a grave. I get that. I get for the skeptic. That's the stuff that legends and myths are made of. I haven't seen anybody come out of the grave. But I'm under the opinion when you look at all of the evidence intellectually. This, we're not asking to suspend the brain here. When you look at it intellectually, it takes more faith to believe he did not die, was not entombed, and did not resurrect. And then what happened to the body, it takes more faith to believe and try to explain that than it does to believe that he is who he said he is and he did what he said he was going to do. And who is he? He is the son of God. What did he say he was going to do? Die for your sin. Die for my sin. Rescue us from sin, death, and hell. And he did it. And he rose again on the third day, showing that he had conquered, showing that he had won. And folks, on that truth, on the truth of who he is, on the truth of what he did, he then has two requirements. Requirements. Not, guys, sure hope you can do this. Guys, come on now, let's do our best. No, two requirements, two expectations based on who he is, based on what he's done. First one is that we believe. Jesus expects you and me to believe. Did you see how he chastised the disciples there? How he, he got, that's the fancy way of saying he got up in their face. What are you guys doing? Are you kidding me? You, you've seen, you've walked, you didn't believe? And he, he got angry with them. He challenged them to believe. Now, I, you and I would say, wait a minute, that's not me, man. Look, I'm sitting here this morning and I believe. But you know, when you back up through the story, you say, wait a minute, the disciples believed? Didn't, they, didn't it come out of their mouth first? We believe you're the son of God. Didn't they follow him around in this town, to that town, to this town? Man, they believed. 
But you know what happened to the disciples? The same thing that happened to everybody in this room. We have a disconnect sometimes between what we believe and where we actually live. What we believe and what we actually do. So they believe, oh, we believe he's the son of God. We believe he's the Messiah. We believe he's the Christ. That's why we're in here hiding. That's why we're in here afraid for our lives. That's why we're not looking for the resurrection. That's why we don't believe it, even though people we love and are friends with are, are telling us that. See, there, there was a disconnect. And aren't you glad that doesn't happen to us? <laughs> no, it, it happens to us, doesn't it, folks? I wonder how many of us, I would assume it would be a lot. I wonder how many of us would say, man, I believe this is the word of God. I don't know how many of us would say, I believe this is the word of God, but I know that 100% of us that would say that disobey what we say we believe is the word of God. I know that 100% of us that say we believe this is the word of God ignore it, are very, very negligent with it. I, I don't know if I can put a percentage on this one. I hope it's not high, but there would certainly be a percentage of us who would say, man, I believe this is the word of God, but we're a little squeamish and embarrassed about carrying it out there because not everybody out there thinks this is so cool, right? I mean, you hold to the values and ideas in here that make you a little bit unpopular at the very least a little bit unpopular. So see, there's the same disconnect with us. And we've talked about all through this series. I, I believe Jesus is worthy of following. I'm a follower of Christ. And yet I can live a day, a week, a month, months on end, never have a single thought of where am I following him? Where am I following him? How is my following affecting my life? How how can you be a follower and not actually be focused on following? You see, folks, what Jesus is calling for here is a belief that affects, a belief that impacts, a belief that touches Everything we are, everything we do, literally every moment of the day. There actually should not be a day of your life that when you crawl into bed at night, you can't look back over the day and see multiple places. The goal is not to have one place each day. Multiple places. My faith, my belief in Christ affected that decision, affected how I responded to that relationship, affected that hurt, that failure, that disappointment. My belief in Christ, my belief that he's the son of God affected how I I looked at that opportunity, how I looked at that victory. Folks, it affects everything we are, everywhere we go, every day. Or it's not a belief that's acknowledged. (laughs) I look at the disciples, they they believed. And yet, what is Jesus saying to them in that room? What's wrong with you? I expect you to believe. I expect that belief to show up when life is falling apart, because that's what was going on, right? Second thing that that Jesus expects us to do, folks, is to, is to go and tell. To go and tell. How, how obvious. Man, when the Broncos win the Super Bowl, you don't have to tell me to go tell somebody about that the next day. You don't have to tell me to put my hat. We, we love to go and tell when we've won. Folks, what victory is bigger than the cross? What victory lasts forever more than the cross? What victory has the biggest impact on your life, your home, everybody, more than the cross? What a great victory. Of course we're going to go and tell. And yet how many people who, who, who call themselves believers, who call themselves followers of Christ won't go and tell. I'm not, I'm not saying they won't do it enough. Gosh, guys, you've got to tell more. No, we, we, won't, we won't go and tell at all. We won't, we won't go and tell anyone. You know why? 
Because we're afraid that the cost of going and telling is going to be too high. You should have at that point just seen our series come full circle. That's what the whole thing's been about, right? Jesus is worthy, whatever the cost. And our, think of our stories that we've watched and, and, and other illustrations I've used. I mean, folks, there's all kinds of ways we pay the fo- cost in, in following Christ. When you forgive somebody that hasn't said they're sorry, that's not going to change why are you forgiving? Because, man, I'm a follower of Christ, and that puts me in a vulnerable position. That's a cost. And there's a my cost is a financial term. There's a cost for following Christ, man. I fund the gospel. I fund the work of the church. There's a cost of that. I could be using that money for other stuff. There's all kinds of costs. But folks, I would like to suggest all costs really come under one great umbrella, and that's going and telling. And going and telling more often than not is where the greatest and the highest cost is paid. When we go and tell, that's where we're going to be made fun of. That's where we're going to be rejected. That's where we're going to be looked at as as weird. And of course, there's been certain places, there's been certain times in history where when you go and tell, you get imprisoned and you get killed. And so what did we do? We learned. I mean, we're not dumb, right? We learn, hey, if if you don't say anything, no cost. How how easy is that? Go and tell. (laughs) A lot of cost with that. Don't tell anybody. We just meet here in our little house. Don't tell anybody. No cost. And doesn't the world kind of subtly encourage that in us? y'all believe what you want do what you want go over there in the corner believe whatever you want to believe just don't come out of the corner and tell us no cost if we be quiet afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who did Go and tell. And he said to them, Hey, I want you to move from unbelief to belief. Here's what it looks like. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Folks, if you would allow me to be so crass and and possibly to present Jesus in a wrong way, I hear Jesus walking into the room and saying, Get off your butt. What in the world are you doing in here saying you're believers? Get out of here and go tell. Go into your business. Go into your schools. Go among your friends. Go among your enemies. Go among strangers. Go anywhere tomorrow takes you. And when you go into your community, have the idea that you're actually trying to get to the whole world. Folks, my goal is not to maybe muster up enough boldness and courage to tell one friend in my entire life of following Christ, maybe two. My goal is actually get out there to the entire earth, the entire planet, and tell the whole world. Because that's what he said. That's what he told me to do. Get out of here and go tell the gospel. Go tell people that I am alive, that I am the son of God, that I saved you and I can save them. But the New Testament, the Bible does not play a bait and switch game with us. 
It's very honest and it's very, very true. And so it tells you what have we read now for the last 13 weeks. If you do believe, if you do go and tell, it will cost you. Some of you, think about when Jesus said to them, go and tell. He knew 10 out of 11 you, you in here will be brutally murdered for going and telling. He knows what it costs. And he says, go and tell. But in that reality, has not Mark tried to say to us? If it costs you everything, he's worth it. Because when it's all done, he wins. Everything. Forever. For you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just lay down at your feet the last 13 Sundays. And Lord, I know we haven't all been here all 13 Sundays, whether it's been one or seven or 13, God. We, we, we take what we've heard from the gospel of Mark, what, what's gone through our ears, into our mind, what's marinating in our soul. And God, we just lay that down before you. We, we, we give to you, we commit to you this time we have given and we ask that you produce in our hearts what is meant to be produced by what we've heard and what we've been a part of, what this story was supposed to do in our lives. May it be true for every single one of us, oh God. Lord, I know that you loved the 11 men in that room. I know you acknowledged that they followed you and that they gave up for you. Lord, you knew that as you sent them out of that room, they would die. Lord, I pray we would hear that call. I pray we would have that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, that kind of readiness. Not to defeat an army, not to beat a team. That we would have the boldness and the courage to share the love of God. And the rescue that you have for each person on this planet. May we be good and faithful stewards of the words that we have heard. And as we get up and leave here, Father, may every step be taken as a follower of Jesus Christ. We need your help. And we'll need your forgiveness. But help us take the next step. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.